seems like it's been a while uh, since we've talked about we have been uh, engaged in a study of the book of Ephesians, but uh, then I went on vacation, and then we had various other things interrupting, and so it's been, I don't know, at least a couple of months, I guess, since we talked about Ephesians. So I thought, if I were to ask you, what's the point? of the book of Ephesians, I wonder what you would say. (laughs) And then I thought, well, maybe I should tell you what you should say. (laughs) Because it's possible we forgot. And plus, as we go through a study like this, you know, we focus on on the parts. And you end up sort of focusing on the part and then you forget that that's part of a a big picture. And of course, Ephesians is part of a bigger picture, which you might call the letters of Paul. And the letters of Paul is part of a bigger picture, which you might call the New Testament. And the New Testament, of course, is part of a bigger picture, which you might call the Word of God. And the focus of the Word of God is Christ. And so the focus of the whole Bible from beginning to end is Christ. Now, sometimes that's harder to see in certain sections, you know, especially in the older parts, that all of that is the story of God getting to Jesus. Because we read in the book of Ephesians that God had Jesus in mind before he did anything. And when I say Jesus, I mean the incarnate Son of God. Of course, the Son of God is eternal God, the triune God. All three persons of God are eternal and exist in an eternal relation to one another as one God. Not three gods, one There's only one being in God who eternally exists, as the creed says, in three persons. And that is a deep, deep mystery to us. We can't figure it out. All the persons we have contact with on a regular basis are one person per being. But God has three persons in one being. Okay. And those three persons before... Creation, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Before the foundation of the world, those three persons came to an agreement. You remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 1? The thing that happened before the foundation of the world. What happened was, God chose us in Him. So, the, God's choosing of us occurred before His creation of us. Wow. 
I think only God can do something like that. And so the plan of redemption was made before creation started. Wow. So that means a lot of things. That means, first of all, that when Adam sinned, it wasn't like a big surprise to God. He they was already in the plan. It wasn't, God didn't go, oh, no, that's not what I expected. Do you know that God never has had that experience? Surprise is not a part of his experience ever. Well, anyway, he wasn't surprised by that because he planned to redeem us. That's what we read about in Ephesians. And his redemption is a redemption of us, not just a redemption of me and you and him and her. Us as a thing. This is really the message of the book of Ephesians. That's just why we titled this series, One New Man. So if you ask me the question, what is the subject of the book of Ephesians? The subject is one new man. <clears throat> now in the modern age, we're very individualistic in our thinking all the time. And so we tend to think in personal individual terms. And so I tend to think of the Christian life as a life I possess. Oh, and you possess it too. And each of us possesses it. And God's project is the development of Christian individuals. But when we come to the book of Ephesians, we learn that there's more to it than that. That certainly is involved. He, he redeems each of us. But he also redeems us as an us. As one new man, one Christian. That's what we read about in the book of Ephesians. So what's happening in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1? We read about the fullness of God's blessing. And the conclusion at the end of chapter 1 is he calls the church, not me, not you, but the us, the fullness of God in Christ. Where is the fullness of God residing in the world today? It is residing in the body of Christ, one new man in Christ, the church. The redeemed people as a group. And so we read at the beginning of chapter 1, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And at the end of chapter 1, in such a way that we can be called the fullness of God in Christ. And I want to ask you the question, how are we doing on that fullness of God thing? Well, there's two answers to that question. One is, we simply are the fullness of God in Him because He has made us to be so, and that has already occurred through the work of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And so it is a fact. 
And the second answer is, well, we could demonstrate this fact more effectively, I believe. Could we not? Because we are one. And yet here, even in this one small church, you can find some lack of oneness. We actually have disagreements. We have not just disagreements, not just different points of view, but active conflict sometimes. Where I am allowing some disagreement to actually disrupt good fellowship. But we are and are called to exhibit the fullness of God in one body. This is the point of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, we read about how did God do this? You know, He did not rely on us. Strangely. (laughs) Actually, it's not strange at all. Why would He? He did not rely on us to create one new man in Christ. He did not wait for us to do it. If he did, he'd still be waiting. He made one new man in Christ. That's the whole message of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. The making of one new man. And so we learned in that chapter how the Lord Jesus Christ created the new man by the blood of his cross. The chapter begins with, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from God and consequently from one another, dead. And he made us alive together. Now, we tend to individualize this. I think he made me alive. He made you alive. He made him alive. He made her alive. That's not what Ephesians says. Now, that's true. But that's not the point of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is this is something he did of us together as one new man. And he says this explicitly in chapter 2. He goes on after he said he made us alive by grace you've been saved. You know, all of that. He goes on from there to say he himself, Christ himself, is our peace. Because he put us together in one body by the work of his cross. The atoning sacrifice of Christ made us one. If you ask, what did Jesus die to give us? Most of us would say, well, salvation. Meaning, I don't have to go to hell. But it's so much more than that. I mean, that's certainly included. But it's so much more than that. He doesn't just resolve the need to punish me for my sins. He actually attributes to me the very righteous life of Jesus. So that because I'm in Christ, when he looks at me, it's as though I lived the way Jesus lived. That's the credit I get. 
How can he do that? Well, because Jesus died in my place. That's how. So I'm not just back to moral zero. I'm back to moral excellence. Moral perfection in the eyes of God. And not just me, also you and us together. And so Christ himself is our peace, and he puts us together in one new man. And the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, he reconciled us in one body to God. Having made us one new man in him, he reconciles us in one body to God. If you ask the question, when were you reconciled to God? The answer is when Jesus died. And so was I. And so was everyone who has trusted in Christ or ever will in the whole history of humanity became one body in Christ at the cross. That's how He made us. You were dead. We were strangers and aliens to God and to each other. And yet, He has reconciled us. And then in chapter 3, we come to this amazing prayer where Jesus prays for Christians that, G that they would believe in Jesus. <laughs> when you pray for Christians, do you pray that they would believe in Jesus? Well, you should, because that's the thing we always need to do. And we don't need to do it any less having been Christians for a hundred years than we did when we first started. The very thing that we all need, that every human being needs, is to trust Jesus Christ. That is like the whole thing. And so Paul prays for the church, for the believing people, that the Spirit of God, that they would be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Here's the thing. You don't have the strength you need to trust Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who works in us to believe. And He continues that work. We don't, that's not just how you graduate from unsaved to saved. This is how we often think about it. Many of us think this way. That the good news is only that we trust in Christ only in order to get from the status of unsaved to the status of saved. But what Paul says is, no, trusting in Christ is the whole thing all the time. And that trusting in Christ, when Christ comes to dwell in our hearts through faith, then we begin to understand the love of God in Christ. Because the end of chapter 3 is about that. We trust in Christ so that we come to know the love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's what I think in heaven or in our eternal condition, which, okay, in heaven. In our eternal state, the thing we will never finish getting to know 
is the magnitude of the love of God for us in Christ. This will be the adventure of all eternity is to see the love of God in Christ, which is beyond seeing. We can know it. We can know it truly, but we cannot fully know it. And we will be getting up every day. I don't know if they're sleeping in heaven. But man, I really enjoy sleeping, so I think there will be. I don't know if they're sleeping in heaven, but when you wake up in heaven every day, you will go, oh, oh, my, oh, I never saw that before. The depth of the love of God in Christ. You will see, you will get to this point, and then you'll look around and go, oh, there's more. I can barely stand how good it is already, but there's more. By the way, that experience is available to us today on a daily basis to explore the depth of the love of Christ. And that is what Paul prays for. Like he prays, he's like begging God that somehow that the Spirit would be able to strengthen you in the inner man so that you would trust Christ so that Christ can fully occupy your heart by faith so that you will begin to get some inkling of the magnitude of the love of God for his redeemed people. It's better than you think. So we see in chapter 1 the fullness, the fullness. We see in chapter 2 how did God make us the one new man? In chapter 3, we see how does God come to indwell the one new man in faith. And we don't do this me, you, him, her. We do this us. And so we get in chapter 4 to what I call the biology. The biology of the one new man. The operation of the body of Christ. And the chapter begins with, so I urge you, brothers, in view, in view of this great gospel, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Wow. We've got to be careful here. We, 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 we don't mean okay, live in order to deserve it because this is a thing you can't deserve. We, we just read that repeatedly. Salvation, you've been saved by grace, by grace, by grace. That means there's no deserving involved. And God has done this thing he determined to do before he even started making stuff. He's determined to redeem his people, the one new man in Christ, so what do we mean, walk in a manner worthy? We mean walk in a way, live in a way that recognizes the weight of God's good grace. <laughs> that even though I cannot possibly get there, I want to adequately express 
my thanksgiving for this grace. My gratitude for this grace. And then Paul goes in at the end of chapter 4 to talk about the biology of the body of Christ, how each part has a part, and we all are one. And so when he's describing how do you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, his summary goes like this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's his summary. If I ask you the question, how do you live like a Christian? The answer is, I rush to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That peace that is Christ Himself. That unity that is made by the common indwelling of the Spirit in each of us and in us together. That's the biology of the body of Christ where we learn to serve one another in love. Speaking the truth in love. Building up the body in love. If you ask the question, what's the mission of the body of Christ? The answer is the body of Christ. We build up the body by proclaiming the gospel in the world and finding the people who belong to the body. And we build up the body by strengthening the fellowship, the love, the relationship, the service, the sacrifice that we bear for the sake of one another. So that our bond of peace becomes strong. We do this by speaking the truth in love. What a great combination, truth in love. It's not just truth. It's not just, wow, you really are a sinful idiot, aren't you? Which would be a true thing to say about any one of us. But we don't need another accuser. We've got one, and he's really good at it. So while I'm honest with you, it's always with the motivation of help. So if I need to tell you about some way that you're being a sinful idiot, then I don't just leave it at that. And I come from a heart of gentle compassion because I know I am also a sinful idiot. And that we are in this together. And that we want to exhibit more the heart of God in Christ by the Spirit. We want to show this love. And so that means if you behave badly to me, I do what Jesus does. So we came in chapter 5 to this how this unity begins to play out. How do we do this? So we walk 
in love. We walk in love. And that means in my fellowship with you, I am more concerned about you than me. I am more concerned about your benefit than mine. I want to be an expression of the full blessing of God in your life. Even if you mistreat me. Perhaps especially then. You know, there's not, you can't forgive somebody who hasn't actually wronged you. And so, I don't necessarily stand up for my own justice. I don't necessarily insist that you do right by me. And if I come to correcting you, I have already forgiven you. And so my correction is not, you need to treat me right because I need to be treated right. I don't actually need to be treated right in Christ. Christ, when he became one of us, utterly gave up the prospect of being treated right as a person, as a human. He was not treated right. He was mistreated, abused, crucified by the very people he was forgiving. And so this text in Ephesians says, forgiving as Christ himself has forgiven you. You know, he doesn't wait around to forgive you until you repent. Wow, that's a bold statement. He determined before creation to forgive you. And he will do so. And that will lead you to repent. He doesn't wait around until you deserve to be forgiven. Because that would be no forgiveness at all. If you deserve it, it's not forgiveness. He doesn't wait around for you to ask. Now the Scripture says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know, that's really about the application of something that's already true. It's really more about you recognizing your forgiveness in Christ than you getting it. Because our salvation is 100% entirely from grace. I understand this is hard to believe. It's too good to be true. Yet it is true. It is the promise of God in Christ. And so he says when he encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which we've been called, that calling to which we've been called is the calling to forgive as we have been forgiven. To quit worrying about whether I'm right and you're wrong. We're all right enough and wrong enough. But to say to one another, the love of Christ covers a multitude of sins, even your sins to me. 
even those ways in which you have injured and hurt me for real. The love of God covers. And if I have been forgiven in this way, I have this to share with you. Even if you don't recognize that you need it. I'm not going to hold out. So we walk in love. We love just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself up for us. We show the love that has been shown to us. The overall commandment that you see in chapter 5 is be imitators of God as beloved children. This is how Jesus lived. We studied the book of John recently. The book of John says it over and over and over again. Jesus says, I don't do anything except what I see God the Father doing. That's what I do. I walk in fellowship with Him. I am an imitator of God as His beloved child. And that is how Jesus can say, not my will, but thine be done the night before the cross. And if we are going to live in this sacrificial way, (laughs) I feel safe in saying this about every one of us. We don't have it. We do not have what it takes. There's only one source of it. And that is why Paul prays in the middle of the book of Ephesians that we would that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That the Spirit would strengthen us for that so that we would get to know the love of God in Christ so that we could begin to exhibit this unity that He has made. And I, you know, I don't mind telling you, I feel like I have a good ways to go. That I think the path that remains to me in this exhibiting of the love of Christ is much longer than the path I've been on so far. That if I'm talking about exhibiting the sort of love that Jesus exhibited, I am a true beginner. I really have no idea what I'm doing. How do I get an idea? I see it in Him. I see it in Him. This is always true. No matter how good you are at it, no matter how good you are at it, the only way you know how to do this is to see it in Him. To know it from Him. To be indwelt by His Spirit. To be trained by His Word. To be involved in the fellowship of the saints, His chosen ones. You know, the church, people often say, well, I'd be a Christian except I can't stand the church. Church is full of hypocrites. And I think, well, of course it is. How could it be otherwise? Uh, 
we've got a good ways to go, but here's the thing about the church. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God has given His Son a sacrifice for our sins. God has imputed to us, the people of God, the body of Christ, the very righteousness of Christ. When God looks at this body of Christians, He does not see evil. He sees His Son. And all we are about is trying to make that more visible to each other and to the world around us. That's the message of the book of Ephesians. Now, here's the thing. If you're looking at the outline in the bulletin, we didn't get to it. (laughs) We didn't get to it. So we'll get to it next time. There's three ways we walk in chapter 5. We walk in love. We walk as children of light. And we walk not as unwise, but as wise. Those three things that describe our walking together in the body. Next time, we've already talked about walking in love. Next time, we'll do what I meant to do this time, which is talk about walking as children of light. When we gather together for the communion, I like the word for the communion, Eucharist. There's a reason I like the word Eucharist because that word Eucharist is, the, is like a combination of words. Eu means good. Charis means grace. Good grace. And the word put together like this, Eucharist, means thanksgiving. Like in English, I don't know about the other languages here, but in English we, we call the little prayer we say before we eat, we call that saying grace. What a curious thing to say. We say grace. And that means we give thanks. What does it mean to give thanks? It means to say to the Lord, good grace. Good grace. Oh, God, good grace. What we have from God is good grace. And when we say it, we're giving thanks. And what we do when we come to the table is only that. Is only that. I wish I could get everyone to figure out how to forget what they've been told about how they've got to confess all their sins before they're worthy to come to the table. There's no one worthy. What we come to the table for is grace. What we have at the table is receiving goodness from God for free. So we are invited freely to come to the table. Now, I'm not telling you it's a bad idea to confess your sins. It's actually a good idea, and maybe the only way you're actually going to get rid of them is to go ahead and acknowledge them to be true. But when you come to this table, you come only as a getter. 
you provide nothing. What if you invited someone over to your house for dinner and they, when they got to the table, they reached in their pocket and they pulled out a handful of old potato chip crumbs and said, uh, I'd like to contribute to the dinner. Ooh. You don't bring anything to this table. You just come and feast on God's good grace. Father, thank You. Thank You. Thank You. Lord, we love You. Help us to love You. Help us to know how much You love us. Father, we pray with Paul that Your Spirit would strengthen us with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that we might somehow really get it how much You love us. Father, as we come to the table, it's a table of thanksgiving, of feasting, of resting ourselves in Him. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.